This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Dr. Meyer is an MD-PhD, and I believe that the, uh, um, the symposium today entitled Gut Feelings was uh, coined with him in mind because he is one of the major pioneers in how your gut controls your brain as opposed to the other way around. Um, there's very clearly a crosstalk between what's going on intra-abdominally and also in the brain. Now, we always think of this in one direction, brain to gut, but apparently it goes both directions, and Dr. Meyer has been one of the uh, leaders in this uh, field. He is the head of the Oppenheimer Family Center uh, uh, of Neurobiology and Stress at UCLA, has been there for several years, is uh, an MD, though, uh, trained in Munich and also in Van- at Vancouver General Hospital, so is very well equipped to explain uh, not just the uh, medical, but also the psychological and psychiatric aspects of what's going on in your gut. Dr. Meyer. Thanks for the invitation to be here, talk about a subject that I've spent um, the brain-gut interaction pretty much most of my career, Um, and thanks for the kind introduction by Dr. Lustig. The the topic is kind of difficult because it ranges a wide range from neurological diseases to um, psychiatric diseases and normal emotional states, so I've tried to pack a lot of information into this talk and organized in, in the following way. I'm just going to give a few introductory words to the gut microbiome brain axis. I personally have studied this all my career from the t- top down, actually. just been recently a convert that there's a lot of important stuff going on the other direction. Um, we'll show some information about the perturbation of gut microbes and effects on brain and behavior. This data comes mainly from animal studies so far. Um, um, I put in a section about the development of gut microbiome brain interactions because I think in, in brain-based diseases that is a crucial part and that's probably why we have a certain discrepancy between the wealth of animal data and uh, the lack of human data which has been mainly done in, in adults. Um, and um, then show a little bit of information about the emerging role of altered gut microbiome brain interactions in IBS, so a, long, a focus of long interest of mine and um, uh, obesity and food addiction particularly. So the, the brain-gut axis, the way we conceptualize it today, is really an interaction between, between two very complex systems, what's referred to as the gut connectome, uh, not a single cell in the gut, not a single microbe, not even the microbes by itself, but the interaction of the 100 trillion microbes with um, a set of cells, specialized cells, including the enteric nervous system, 50 million neurons, but the largest immune system of the gut and enteroendocrine cells, the largest endocrine system. It's the interaction of all these cells with each other that I think generates an output that um, has an influence on the brain by multiple pathways, which I'll show you. And then we have, at the brain level, we, have, we now understand there's not a couple of regions, but there's uh, complex networks, the brain connectome, uh, that generates an output in response to what it receives from the gut. So it's a very complex system. Um, but it has been an, an alteration. This has been 
implicated in regulation of emotions, pain sensitivity, uh, ingestive behavior relevant for this symposium, stress responsiveness and social interactions. I did not make the list of psychiatric and neurological diseases that have been implicated because in many of them we don't really, there are speculations, we don't have the evidence yet. So why would there be an interaction between the gut microbes um, and the nervous system? So I sort of like to think about this in the way, if you look in, in evolutionary terms, the, the microbes in the oceans have been around for a long time, some several billion years. Um, before, um, um, be, uh, before this first symbiosis between microbes and intestinal tract happened in very primitive marine animals. Uh, these are interesting creatures because they have a, they're basically a digestive tube with a nerve network around it. Um, and when the first time the microbes decided to settle in that, uh, in that GI tract, they had the ability to closely communicate and transfer genes <clears throat> to, the, to the enteric nervous system of that organ. And then later, over uh, evolution, there has been an evolution from the enteric nervous system to move the main control centers into the brain. So we have actually a very logical uh, evolutionary history why there would be this close connection that we all refer to in, with the term God feelings, but until recently not really um, understood the, the uh, biology. So there have been a lot of studies, and this has really triggered, there have been a few pioneers in Ireland and Canada that has really triggered uh, the excitement in this field. Um, just to give one example, so the, the fecal transplantation of, um, um, from a mouse strain that is more timid, uh, I had to use these anthropomorphic terms, but um, that's, that's sort of been, that makes it easier understandable, they're less exploratory, various behavioral tests, into a an, an more outgoing um, mouse strain, which then changes the behavior of that animal into the same timid uh, animal. So this has been some of the first studies, uh, kind of really, a lot of people were skeptical at the beginning, but in the meantime, quite a few similar studies have been published. This is kind of summarized here. Um, with largely with germ-free animals, so that is important to realize. So these, this is kind of a developmental model, so these animals had been without the input to the brain of the um, microbes uh, from early on. I think that it's a key thing to, to sort of put this into perspective. In the adult animals, there have been changes in nociceptive reflexes, emotional behavior, social behavior, and ingestive behavior. Some of these experiments have also used the, the fecal transplantation, and a few have used um, uh, probiotic interventions. It's not just been the behavior of these animals, but also uh, biological readouts such as brain neurochemistry, um, HPA axis responsiveness, which was actually one of the first demonstrations some, some 10 years ago, um, and um, at the gut level, stress-induced uh, microbial gene expression change. So let me just go, um, before we go to some of the data, what are the communication channels um, and I would like to start this with how the brain talks to the gut. Um, even though this has not been emphasized as much today as the other way around, the earlier studies really came from that, and I think it's really relevant to keep this in mind. <clears throat> so the brain, through, mainly through the autonomic nervous system, can influence various cell types in the gut, from the immune cells, the enteroendocrine cells, uh, and the neurons. <clears throat> um, one particularly intriguing example is the, uh, the studies on norepinephrine. Um, so it's been shown in vitro that um, um, 
I think it was close to 10 different pathogens. Um, um, norepinephrine um, addition to the culture changes the gene expression of virulence genes of these organisms. Um, um, and, in and in vivo, it's been shown that, uh, for example, in, in, in pigs, that stress um, changes microbial behavior and increases the risk of prolonged uh, and often deadly uh, infections in these animals. So this is because with increased stress, not just an increase in epinephrine in the blood, but it's also uh, an increase in the luminal content of free um, norepinephrine. And there are receptors um, analogous on microbes of, to the adrenergic receptors that mediate this effect. And a side issue, it's also intriguing, and this kind of confirms this long symbiosis of the microbes with the human host. These cells, the microbes, can also produce a norepinephrine-like molecule that can act on our own mucosal uh, adrenergic receptors. Um, now, there's other examples. So serotonin levels go up in the brain, uh, in, the, in the gut during stress, and there's most likely most of these endocrine cells that, are, um, that contain about 20 different gut hormones have this bidirectional signaling. So with stress and emotional reactions, we get an increase in these transmitters. We don't really know, um, other than for norepinephrine, what they do. So the other way around from uh, how the gut talks to the brain, so there's uh, multiple mechanisms that have been implicated in many review articles, fewer data, but uh, neuroactive metabolites, tryptophan, GABA, glutamate, um, bilacid metabolites, uh, secondary bilacids, uh, short-chain fatty acids, and uh, cytokines, to just name a few. Um, there was a mention about the short-chain fatty acids before. This is intriguing because we have um, the short-chain fatty acids and bilacid receptors on many of these transducer cells in the gut. So these are not just things that are good for the epithelial cells, but they're a signaling mechanism that can transduce an increase in the short-chain fatty acids into signals that go back to the brain. Um, I want to focus on one aspect which I personally think, um, after sort of um, thinking a lot about this field, the immune signaling probably plays a particularly important role in this gut-to-brain communication. Um, shown here the, the, the example of the dendritic cells that um, can, even without a breach or increased perme gut permeability, can sample um, signals from the microbes with um, um, toll-like receptors uh, and, and other sensors, including the short-chain fatty acids, um, and then um, lead to a release um, within the um, basal lateral side, within the lamina propria of um, uh, cytokines. Now, what happens to these cytokines and how do they get to the brain? One is, um, it's clearly been demonstrated they can act on cytokine receptors on vagal afferents, so the sickness syndrome that's been uh, described by Linda Watkins many years ago is one example. But there's also other pathways that have been emphasized. <clears throat> so cytokine release um, into the circulation, even at low levels, um, and also other um, inflammatory markers such as uh, lipopolysaccharide, um, getting to the brain, passing the blood-brain barrier, changing the permeability of the blood-brain barrier, and activating microglia um, in the central nervous system to in turn produce regional increases in um, cytokines and affect neurons. This neuroinflammation has been implicated in, in a range of um, CNS disorders, uh, depression, neurodegenerative diseases, 
chronic pain, um, um, but also in uh, obesity and uh, possibly food addiction. Uh, I won't get much into that, but the serotonin signal signaling is another um, pretty very prominent way of how the microbes can signal to the brain. Been implicated quite a bit in, in studies for a, uh, in animal studies where they cut the vagus nerve and basically no longer saw the effect of microbial changes. Um, as I'll show you in a minute, the vagus nerve has an intricate relationship with these cells. The cells by themselves are intriguing because they contain more than 95% of the body's serotonin. Um, and there's a couple of things we have learned recently about them that makes them even more intriguing. So one is study by uh, Elaine Chow, recently published, that has shown that microbial metabolites can stimulate the synthesis of serotonin um, in these cells. And the second one is that um, the vagus nerve doesn't just, um, isn't just sitting around there, the terminals, but it actually forms um, true synaptic connections. So these cells are really almost like part of the nervous system uh, that sample, that are positioned to sample what goes on in the gut and have a significant input from the uh, microbial metabolites. So if you put this together, the microbes, obviously a major influence is uh, what we eat, um, and this gives a pathway by which um, chronic changes, I, I think acute changes are probably not as important as chronic changes, that chronic changes in our dietary habits can have an effect on, on background emotion and uh, behavior. So there's a lot of this animal science, I think, as opposed to some of the other areas that people have talked about today, it's been harder to really get the clues what happens with this in humans. So one is we don't, with the exception of autism, we don't see these traumatic increases like in obesity or autoimmune diseases. So that is something you have to think of as clearly different. We haven't seen a dramatic rise in depression, anxiety. Um, um, and um, the other one is... Um, so let me get to this. Can we, we uh, several years ago, asked the question, can we alter um, signaling from the gut microbiome to brain networks in healthy humans? This was really a proof of principle study. We, did, we selected, carefully selected healthy young women without any evidence for any pain, uh, chronic pain, psychiatric, um, uh, even baseline um, trade anxiety elevations were, were eliminated. And we want to know, can we influence the system shown here, the signaling from the gut microbiota to the brain, to brain networks, um, and we use the intervention of a mix of uh, probiotics in a, um, um, in a yogurt drink that um, individuals consumed for four weeks, twice a day. <clears throat> and there were a couple of control groups, one who did not do any intervention, and one was a non-fermented milk product. And we used, so we want to see, because we based this on the animal data that was available, does the emotional reactivity of these individuals change to that intervention? We used sort of a standard um, emotional face recognition task, where basically the individual is asked to, uh, to match the face on the, the emotional expression um, depicted by the face on top um, with the one uh, um, of, of, of one or two below. What we found was so really against, um, different from our hypothesis, we did not see primarily the uh, modulation of the emotional um, uh, arousal network that we had hypothesized with the amygdala and the, um, the anterior insula and the, um, um, the anterior cingulate cortex, the, 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 the anterior region. But we saw an extensive network of brain regions that was differed, this differed from the 
beginning of the study to the four week uh, the, the end of the study. Um, this uh, network in- included sensory, um, both viscerosensory and somatosensory regions, as, as, as well as pain modulatory regions. And what was most interesting that the, the intervention um, showed a change in the connectivity of this network. So the individuals that consumed the probiotic mix um, had a decrease in this network, so they showed a decreased response to the these negative emotional recognition tests. So these were all negative emotions, not positive ones. Um, um, as opposed to the control group that got the non-fermented milk product that did not show a change, or the, the group that had no intervention at all, which um, showed a slight increase during that time. There are several other studies going on at, at the moment, but unfortunately they are much slower than the, um, than the animal studies, so um, there, there will be a delay, but... Um, um, it will be exciting to see some of these confirmative studies also in disease populations. So let me say a few things about um, gut microbes and brain development. Um, we've heard a lot about that it's important what happens early in life. I think that applies probably equally to the central nervous system. I'll give you a few examples um, why I think that way. Um, so one is clearly does the early gut microbial environment affect brain development? Um, one of the earliest studies, um, and one of the best studies that was published on this um, by Sven Patterson's group, um, they showed that in germ-free mice, uh, germ-free mice, as opposed to um, the control animals, there was a reduced anxiety-like behavior when these animals grew up, um, so indicating that somehow the microbes growing up with intact microbiome um, has a um, a stimulatory effect on emotional reactivity. They, they also found that um, there was, at the brain level, there was an increased turnover of several neurotransmitters um, in emotional uh, areas, such as the hippocampus and the stratum, norepinephrine, dopamine, and serotonin. Um, and also there were changes in gene expression of several anxiety and synaptic plasticity-related genes in these animals. <clears throat> So Sven Pedersen himself thinks that, um, in personal conversations with him, that this has to do with the metabolism, uh, the ultimate metabolism early on in life, and that this is an adaption to this response. Um, it, it, it is interesting that this goes contrary. If you take germ-free animals, they have an increased responsiveness of the HPA axis, um, which may really be in response to the metabolic stress, but a decreased anxiety. So this is a combination that we rarely see in human anxiety disorders. So why would development be so important? So there's obviously multiple factors that have been characterized that uh, influence the um, development of the gut microbiome in um, the first three years, starting prenatally. There's, um, there's maternal effects. Um, there's effects during delivery, and there's postnatal effects. Um, and <clears throat> I was going to show you, I'm going to show you just a couple of examples um, of what, where we have some evidence that the... the um, the, the, the interaction of the, um, the mother with the, um, with, with the fetus, but also with the newborn, may play a, a very important role in shaping the um, gut-microbial-brain interaction. So one is something that we have had a long-standing interest in, even long before we thought about the, the gut microbes, is the quality of the, um, um, the infant primary caregiver 
many other interactions early in life and what effect this has. It's been a wealth of studies in the last 15 years, uh, so starting with Michael Meany, Paul Plotsky, and others, which in animal models have shown that this maternal care plays a major role in the development of many emotional brain systems, <clears throat> um, including the HPA axis responsiveness, anxiety-like behavior. So until recently, this was thought to be completely explainable by mechanisms excluding the gut microbes. There wasn't even um, any talk about that. What we know from a very recent study, it's just come out, uh, <clears throat> that it appears that two components of this um, response are mediated by different mechanisms. So the AHP axis response um, being independent of the gut microbial composition, being equal in germ-free animals and <clears throat> animals with a normal um, microbiota. But the emotional response, the increased anxiety-like behavior, was dependent on the gut microbiota. So this is, a, I think, an interesting study where it really dissects our mechanisms that before we explained purely by uh, neurobiological terms, and now we have a microbial aspect to it. Another study that I find particularly interesting is a recent study on the effect of maternal stress. So this was the interaction of infant mother. Now it's maternal stress before birth <clears throat> um, by Tracy Bale's group, um, where they found that stress <clears throat> of the mother during pregnancy in mice um, changed the vaginal microbiome, mainly a decrease in the uh, lactobacilli in, in the, the maternal um, vagina. Um, that this was associated with a change in the gut microbiome of the offspring. Not too surprising because we know that this is the main mechanism of inoculation. It was also decrease in lactobacilli. Without getting into the details, this was sex-specific, so it was different in male and female um, offspring. Um, and most interesting, this was associated with a difference in the amino acid um, profile at the brain level of, of the newborn. So the stress of the mother, change of the vaginal microbiome, change in the infant's gut microbiome, and then change in brain levels of neurotransmitters, I think is a sort of an intriguing example to how, how these things are connected. Um, we have several data sets where we start to look at is there a correlation between um, the gut microbial organization associated with brain architecture. My personal feeling is if you look at architecture, it's probably something that developed early um, in, um, during development. It's unlikely that a change in your microbes will change the rewiring or, or, or rewire your, your, your brain. Um, and <clears throat> I'll show you one study that um, um, we've uh, recently completed where we looked at the gut microbiome. So IBS is one of the areas that we're pursuing in, in our research. Um, and there's been a recent study from the Quark group um, that showed that, if, um, that uh, based on uh, 16S data, there seem to be at least two subgroups of IBS patients, one that looks indistinguishable from, from healthy people and another one that um, is distinct. We confirmed the same thing. We had a healthy control-like IBS group in terms of this is a very high t taxonomic classification based on Firmicutes, um, abundance of Firmicutes and Bacteroidetes. Uh, but then there was a group that had higher levels of the Firmicutes. Um, the main reason I'm showing this to you because if you looked at their brains, um, we found that these two IBS groups differed in their brain structure 
in the gray matter volume. Um, so smaller volumes in the abnormal IBS group were found in the frontal and insular regions, um, and larger volumes were found in the sensory motor regions. So in, in a very large group of data that we've published in the past, um, we, we've always found that, um, um, that the, the changes in the sensory motor um, uh, area in IBS patients are sort of the most consistent. So we think it's one indication that might, from cross-sectional data that might allow you to speculate this is something that may develop uh, early in life and give you basically a, um, a brain system that has an increased um, sensitivity to sensory stimuli, as we know from IBS patients. They're not only more sensitive for gut stimuli, but also for a variety of other uh, somatosensory stimuli. So I have five minutes. I'll go through this um, topic of do the gut microbes play a role in relation between obesity and altered brain networks? Um, one area of interest that we have in this area is ingestive behavior, um, particularly food addiction. Um, Rob already mentioned that study early, just to, to emphasize, um, there are mouse models that uh, are supportive of this concept that um, gut microbes can play a role in regulating ingestive behavior. Um, in, in this particular study, in these um, TLR5 knockouts, it, it was clearly related to the hyperphagia of these animals that drove the, the uh, obesity. Um, there's a lot of evidence, and uh, obviously I'm talking to the, to the experts here in this, in, in this audience, um, that the brain plays a, a very important role in, in obese subjects. Um, so even before ingestion of the food, there's abnormalities. Um, and this has been summarized, many of these features have been summarized in this concept of uh, food addiction by Nora Volko um, based on uh, elegant studies uh, implicating the, the, the dopamine systems. So we were interested or are interested in have ongoing studies on this. Um, is there a change in brain networks that relates, um, um, that is seen in uh, individuals with food addiction? And is there a relationship between gut microbial profiles and metabolites and this, this alteration? These are ongoing studies. I just want to show you um, one aspect of this. Um, so just looking at the white matter connectivity, so using diffusion tensor ima uh, imaging of obese, completely healthy people, we could classify them simply based on a limited number of brain parameters that separate these groups completely without knowing any other. So when Rob said you can profile um, obese people just in the microbes, we can profile them based on their um, white matter connectivity. Obviously, nobody is going to do that. Uh, because, you know, we know if somebody is, 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 is obese. Um, but what, uh, what is interesting, what is going to be the most interesting question, is there a relationship between these two alterations, um, the microbes in the gut and these patterns in the brain? The connectivity affected primarily the central reward system. So um, uh, the, uh, the nucleus accumbens, basal ganglia, um, so regions of the extended reward uh, network. Um, how would these changes, these neuroplastic changes occur? Would this be early on in life or uh, during a lifetime? So one, um, we talked earlier about this immune to brain signaling. Um, I personally think that is still a very good candidate for what we see in the, um, in the brain of people with food addiction, um, that um, 
that alter microbial compositions based on dietary patterns, for example, high fat intake uh, has been associated with this, an increase in gram-negative bacteria, increased LPS, um, leading ultimately, and there's obviously a lot of steps in there that still has to be confirmed, um, to a state of um, metabolic toxemia, low-grade increase in cytokines, LPS circulation, and ultimately um, to neuroinflammation, as I showed you earlier. I'll, I'll come back to this, what this neuroinflammation would do at, at, at the brain level and which region it might affect. One model that we've been pursuing is bariatric surgery. Not that I think this is a solution for the obesity epidemic, but because it gives us a good model of something, a very effective um, intervention um, that hopefully will give us answers about mechanisms that can be then addressed with, with non-surgical means. So one talk about the various bariatric surgeries that have been used. But from animal studies, we know that um, um, bariatric surgery in uh, rodents um, leads to significant changes in the uh, gut microbial composition, um, a um, reversal, a partial reversion of this um, increased firmicute to bacteroidetes ratio that um, seems to be some concept that I think goes consistently through um, various studies. Um, and we think that this, this change in the, in, this, um, in, the, in the gut microbiota is responsible for, not just for the fairly rapid changes that occur in um, ingested behavior um, components, such as the prevalence for, um, um, for, for, for food items, so the decrease in the craving for fat and um, and, and, and sugar content, um, but that also it's responsible for the um, for these changes that have been described at the brain level. So decreased sensitivity of the hypothalamus, for example, to um, <clears throat> to satiety signals, which were inflammation, neuroinflammation of the hypothalamus has been implicated, and we also would speculate that some of the neuroplastic changes we see in individuals who have been obese. Um, for, for many years um, at, uh, within the reward system. So a hypothesis at the moment, but um, so come to the last slide. So like, just like what I talked to you earlier about the um, maternal stress and um, the models that we had until about five years ago, it's always interesting to me to see this, um, we thought we had it completely figured out, then the microbiome came, and then we had to greatly expand these models. Same thing has really been happening, I think, in food addiction. That, um, so this model where you have the hypothalamus as the main regulator of the homeostatic uh, brain intake um, and the, um, the extended reward system with this transmitter dopamine as the main regulator of the, <clears throat> um, the motivational aspects, um, ultimately to food addiction, that a major role in the regulation of these systems may become becoming um, from the gut microbiota. My personal feeling is an important component of this or mechanism may be this low-grade neuroinflammation in, in regional um, parts of the brain. So the take-home message, uh, I think the brain, even though we don't have the same stunning data epidemiologically as we have in other areas, I'm strongly believe that the brain can influence the gut microbes. I think there is strong evidence for that in animals and humans. Uh, and that gut microbial signaling molecules can affect the brain. 
These interactions play a prominent role in brain development and lifelong brain modulation. I personally feel uh, most enthusiastic about the brain development part um, rather than these acute effects that are easy to demonstrate in animals. Um, early life gut microbial programming is influenced by many factors, including the mode of delivery, quantity and quality of early nutrition, medications, and perinatal stress, both prenatally and postnatally. Um, and diet-induced gut microbial modulation is likely to play a role in neuromodulation and dysregulation of ingestive behavior. I think we'll see in the next few years um, many studies that are ongoing that will either prove or disprove um, this hypothesis. So I'd like to thank the, the people in, in our group, particularly um, Jen Levis, Kirsten Tillich, Lisa Kilpatrick, and Annie Gupta for um, being involved in these studies I showed you and the NIH support. Um, and thank you for your attention. Thank you, thank you, Dr. Meyer. Uh, we have a time for two questions. Anything burning? I see lots of psychiatrists in the room. There's got to be at least one question from a psychiatrist. Come on, Owen. <laughs> All right, well, then I'll... Uh, where? Down here. Yeah, so when, uh, when Elisa looked at my slides, I had a lot more about autism and Parkinson's, which I took out because it really talks in themselves. What's, what's fascinating about Parkinson, there is this concept that the earliest degenerative lesions really occur at the, in the enteric nervous system, these Lewy bodies, um, and there's a hypothesis that um, they can gradually be traced from the enteric nervous system to the um, nuclear tractus solitarius before they reach um, the, the classical dopamine-containing brain regions in the brain. Um, there's also a recent study that is one study so far that has shown altered gut microbial composition in um, patients with Parkinson's. The problem, like with all human studies, is Parkinson's probably because of this enteric nervous system involvement. Um, they're typical. They have severe constipation, which obviously changes the environment for the microbes, so we don't know what's the chicken and the egg. Are these. So, but I think the potential... Um, as um, Rob said in the beginning, to be able to diagnose people at high risk of Parkinson's early on based on their gut microbes, I think is, is probably better than for many other um, uh, brain diseases, I would say, based on the data that we have. Lord. So I'm, I'm wondering about... Am I on the mic? Am I on the mic? Yes. I'll, I'll... <laughs> I have a loud voice. About a, a, a spurious or indirect relationship going on here. So you could have a person with uh, poor diet who develops dopamine downregulation in the brain and the uh, changes going on, leptin resistance and so forth. And then that would account for a, a, a not, not very healthy gut ba bacteria situation. And so are you thinking about both indirect relationships and also spurious associations here? Um, well, there's, there's probably multiple mechanisms. I mean, there's factors. 
because of this integrated circuit that we have between the gut and the brain, con uh, the gut connectome and, and the brain, um, it's clearly an interaction of, for example, mind-based factors and diet-based factors. Um, and often you probably won't be able to, I mean, unless you do huge human studies where you can identify subtypes um, with, with high and low trait anxiety, for example, or low and high stress, it's pretty difficult to show that. Um, but, but I think the, the main concept to understand this is it's, this is a nonlinear system. You cannot say diet alone will, for example, change the microbes. If, um, Parkinson is, is, is a good example. There may be dietary factors, um, but there also may be central factors, and then there's, you have these changes in transit rates of the GI tract. Um, that, that makes it particularly challenging uh, to, to come up with any simple... Um, linear um, relationship between th these various factors that play a role, I think it's going to be very difficult. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.